to the Mental More Mindset Podcast. I'm Yaa. As a peak performance coach and lifestyle architect, I help women who are ready to reach their next level, eliminate negative self-talk and break through what's been holding them back so they can have clarity, confidence and prosperity in their career and lifestyle. This podcast is to empower you with a Mental More Mindset and help you reach your next level so you can uncover your purpose, reclaim your power and reach your potential. This means no longer living by default but dreaming big and pushing yourself to be, do and have more. I want everyone to know that change is possible, that you are not alone, and there is an alternative way forward, because when you change your mind, it will change your life. Hi guys, and welcome to our next episode of the Mental More Mindset. Today, I have Maria with me. Now, I'm going to be honest, and um, full disclosure, I can't say Maria's last name, so I'm going to ask Maria to pronounce her own last name for us. Lovely. So I'm Maria Kodadovich. That's the Polish pronunciation. <laughs> Love that. Thank you, Maria. So Maria, um, please um, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you. Well, I'm a chartered psychologist. And what that means is I get to do lots of wonderful work. I mainly work with NHS teams, helping develop them and helping to evaluate services and programs of work in health and social care. So that's one part of what I do. And then the rest of the time, I'm an academic at the University of Nottingham, where I direct a centre for interprofessional education and learning. And I'm associate professor in organisational behaviour. So my career, if you like, are two things, the academic post and then the consultancy I run working with the NHS. Um, you asked me to tell people a bit about myself. Of course, my career is not all of me. So the rest of the time, I'm a mother of three and I live in a beautiful village in rural Lincolnshire with my three children, uh, my boyfriend and two dogs and, um, yeah, I, I thrive uh, where I live, which which uh, I'm ever so grateful for. Oh, that sounds amazing. So now I'm going to ask you to tell us something interesting about you that most people don't know. Yeah, well, I was thinking uh, a long while actually about how to answer this. I think in a way, I'm a, I hope I'm a bit of an open book. Um, so I'm not sure there is much that people don't know. I guess people, when they first meet me, they probably don't realise that I wear wigs. Um, and that's something that I've been doing for many years since I developed alopecia when I was going through quite a difficult divorce. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess people in my professional life maybe can't tell uh, <laughs> if the wigs are good enough. Um, but in my personal life, I run uh, an Instagram account where I help to promote wigs and just do a bit of support and information for ladies who uh, are going through um hair loss either through alopecia chemo and um, for other reasons uh, so yes I guess that's that's my hobby and I've got about 40 or so wigs and they're taking over my bedroom <laughs> as we speak <laughs> and I have to ask do you name your wigs well they all have names uh branded names so you know they've all got beautiful names like um Avalon and uh oh. I know this one's Miles of Style and it's by Raquel Welch uh, so yeah, they, they have ingenious names already, but they're all labelled uh, and clearly organised. <laughs> I love that, I love that. Um, tell us what your story is. How did you get to where you are today? 
Yeah, but I, I think I'll answer that in a relatively career-centric way mm-hmm. uh, because often our career takes us places both personally and professionally. So um, I went to university a bit late. Uh, I worked as a kind of regional retail manager straight after sixth form. Uh, And the reason for that is I left home relatively early and needed to save money, support myself, pay for my education and so forth. Uh, And then I went on to study psychology. Um, My first job was as a nursing assistant in general practice. Uh, and then when I graduated, I, I worked as an assistant clinical psychologist in Camden, um, which is uh, one of my uh, spiritual homes. <laughs> and um, then instead of going into clinical psychology practice, I, I very quickly realised that I make a good manager. Uh, and there's something about how systems are organised, coordinated, ran, Uh, within where I was working in the NHS that I felt could have been improved and that I could play a significant role in that. Uh, So then I worked in the senior NHS um, management, as head of programmes, projects across a range of settings. I worked in prisons, forensics for a number of years. Um, And simultaneously, I was doing my PhD at King's in health services research, which looked at general practice organisation so around the time there were lots of reforms in the NHS which from a moral standpoint were a little unwelcome so a lot of my NHS contracts ended up being staff restructure contracts where in essence you are downbanding and and, um, reducing team sizes so that became quite demoralizing and around that time I was completing the PhD so then I went more wholeheartedly into academia Uh, but also built up this awareness of actually people at work need to be supported, nurtured. And that isn't often what I saw in the numerous roles that I held, not just within the NHS, but beyond. So my work then kind of has now been brought into this wonderful amalgamation of the work with teams and team development, where I do a bit of coaching. Um, I'm also now trained to be a psychotherapist, so I'm increasingly bringing in some of those principles in how I work with NHS teams. Uh, but also then into academia, and you know, I teach. I've led um, programs, and now the centre I direct, which is all about how you bring professionals together in health and social care. Uh, to work more effectively and the role that education plays in that. So I'm quite lucky to be in a position now that unites so many of my interests. And I think a lot of that happened quite organically, actually. It's saying yes to things that I thought, oh, that kind of suits me. And also it's what people approach you with, you know, where people see you, where you might not quite see yourself, but then you kind of become... Uh, that that person that you're viewed uh, as being um so that's quite an a kind of uh, abridged <laughs> story of how I got to where I am today um so what I heard in there is you spoke about um saying yes so is that something that you developed or was that something that you um have always had it's something I've always had and it's both one of my 
greatest assets and my greatest affliction. So I get really excited about life, new projects, everything, you know, this wonderful existence has to offer. So when people come to me with a project or an idea, you know, I, I jump on it. There's not much that I find boring, you know, um, maybe football a little bit. But, you know, other than that, it's kind of life just fascinates me. So I'm naturally somebody who says yes who takes things on, who wants to support, wants to engage. Mm -hmm. But I think where I also say it's an affliction mm -hmm. in becoming older, since having children, caring responsibilities, your time is no longer infinite or you realize it never was. Um, and of course, as you layer on more work over time and you take past relationships with you, it becomes this kind of massive, immersive load in a way so I have entered the life stage of now learning and I'm not quite there but learning to say no learning to give realistic answers learning to manage expectations and I think the pandemic and a bit of reflective time around then was quite helpful in in helping me kind of move on to that next phase where I'm in a lucky position I can be a lot more discerning with what I take on and um, how I wish to use my time. Yeah. So in terms of the, the sermon, um, how has that helped you? It's helped me grow and develop. Mm. It helped me be more in touch with my needs or perhaps the discernment stems from me being more in touch with my needs. Mm. So I'm going to be a bit gendered but I think often as women we put the needs of others before our own ours tend to go on the back burner and there's something about the necessity of being able to identify what those needs are and then being able to learn as to how to assert them and that's a necessity for our own health well-being survival for our ability to care for others, but also for our ability to lead rich lives of our own making. So to me, discernment, there's an empowerment in there, isn't there, of this is how I am choosing to live out my life, life that is short. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we don't have an awful lot of time here. So making that choice, is one of the greatest gifts I think we can give ourselves. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So with that, what motivates you to get up and go in the morning? Quite groggy in the mornings, actually. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm quite um, demotivated in the mornings. Uh, it's all very reactive at the moment because uh, my youngest is three. So usually it's him jumping on my head if I'm honest and you know he's got this kind of routine of trying to prize my eyes open or <laughs> well first he'll we'll, we'll have cuddles but then that's sort of smacked around the face <laughs> until I wake up so that's that's actually my motivation um but then I, to get to the root of your question I think it's that interest that fascination of oh what is the day going to bring you know let me have a go today let me see how I feel today, you know, an interest and curiosity around other people mm -hmm. and around how I may react to new scenarios, because every day brings with it 
no matter how mundane, but it still brings something new. And for me, that is essentially what keeps life so interesting and engaging. I love that. So where does your zest for life come from? Because I can see you're very, like, you have a real zest for life. Oh, thank you. Um, I think partly from me, but I also say from, from my um, late granddad mm. in good measure. So he was somebody who used retirement to the max. You know, he was constantly doing things, learning, writing, you know, going through archives when in the past archives were your physical library archives, mm -hmm. researching subjects. He, he was an academic too. Um, gardening, he was so interested. So this is in, in Poland. So if we think about when the Berlin Wall came down and, you know, suddenly Poland went from being communist to then capitalism coming in um, and he was so fascinated by the new you know I still remember how it was crucial for him to get a computer um, and this is going back a few decades when actually it was quite an innovative thing to do for an older person and um, so there's just this fascination with life that I found infectious um, and have always wanted to emanate but I think I'm just a bit inherently like that you know um because otherwise I think we can become we can waste waste our time here in a way if, if we just kind of plod along and you know um let things happen to us without being with them or thinking about them, reflecting on, on that and our growth and where we want to be and the kind of values we want to enact, the sorts of relationships we want to have, you know, that's important, I think, that zest. And I'm very glad I, I have it and that you recognise it in me. No, I do. And, and what I also love is when you just spoke just there about how, like, life has taught you lessons and you've actually um taking them on and learn them so in terms of being a lot more reflective and a lot more like we spoke about earlier discerning I just love I just love that um love that about um what you're saying because I think it's so important because otherwise you just kind of get lost and life is happening to you as opposed to for you and I really get the impression with you that life happens for you you create situations that allows life to happen for you would you say that's the case Absolutely. And I do that quite consciously, actually, you know, I work back from, well, where do I want to be? And what's the context that I need to create? What are the key ingredients that I need to bring in to my existence in order for that to happen? And I'm not even talking about, you know, becoming the next prime minister, but it's things like, okay, I want my home to be comfortable in a certain way. That's important. So I rest. So, right, what needs to happen? How do I move the furniture around? And, and then figuratively, I'm doing the same in my professional and personal life. And I've always been quite a quick decision maker. So when I want to change something, I just do it. Um, and I think... I have come across, especially in romantic relationships where uh, others have found that a bit problematic, you know, oh, why have the curtains changed again? Or <laughs> that kind of thing. So, um, 
yeah I just I just like to you know once I've got that kind of fire in me about something just just go for it and try take the risk um you know what's the worst thing that could happen it, it doesn't work out and that's perfectly okay and I love that. I love that because um, so many, and I would say a lot of women aren't um, quick decision makers and they, you're ruminating about it and thinking about all, all the different things that could happen you're assessing as opposed to actually making that quick change. And then like you said, what's the worst that can happen? So in terms of for you, how has, how has it been positive also, but also how has it been um, had an adverse reaction, if you will? Mm. I guess what we're getting at is, you know, we could call them failures or setbacks. It's a tricky one to answer because I'm not sure I even kind of identify them as setbacks. Mm. And if something doesn't quite work out, then I just, you know, go around that or find another option. Um, I think, what, and it's not quite answering your question, but I do find that nowadays change in decision making there's so much bureaucracy surrounding us that we've kind of we exist in something these academics called dimaggio and powell called the iron cage mm -hmm. where we're in this position of if you want to do something you know you've got 20 forms to fill out that don't load online or don't work with a particular operating system or it, you know and then there's the paper form and then did I get the letter did the email go to my spam folder can I remember the password and, and I think that's what really frustrates me I think we need to kind of bulldoze over all of that and start again because so much of my time and I try to reduce this in so far as possible is spent on you know form filling mm -hmm. um and I'm getting to this point where I, I'm starting to think that this is the way to keep the populace down, you know, um, <laughs> just get them to sit in front of their computers and fill forms all day. And so where I was going with that answer is I'm having to be more and more mindful of how I navigate the spin off paperwork and administration that is caused by wanting to make a change. Wow because that can be quite disempowering, I think. Yeah. And, and I hope, you know, listeners can empathise with that a bit, because I think we're all in this kind of yeah. form-filling, information-giving, data collection, tick the consent form, cookies, whatever, nightmare. <laughs> Just hope it goes away one day. <laughs> so, so with that then, how do you... Um, so there's a phrase that I use, and it's um, eat, the meat, eat the meat and leave the bones. Right, and yeah. so how do you how do you do that how are you able to discern okay this is the part of it that actually is beneficial to me and this is the part of it I need to just leave yeah that's a really good question to sort of eat the frog you know um I mean I'm vegetarian uh <laughs> since the age of eight so I'm not sure I always get that right I can draw the analogy there so, so you know sometimes for me that the bones do serve a purpose. Mm -hmm. So it might be that I'm demotivated, mm -hmm. but actually I can do the real stimulus response stuff of just doing emails all day. Mm -hmm. And that can then get me into a bit more of a mindset. You know, some people say kind of hit that kind of top of the to-do list priority from the outset. Mm -hmm. But I find that actually sometimes concerning yourself with the bones can 
maybe be a procrastination activity, but it's one that can lead you into that bigger picture, especially if you're not feeling brave enough. But then if, if I answer your question on a kind of higher level, mm-hmm. it always, I hope always, goes back to my values in some way. So taking on programs of work that I feel there's capacity there to undermine other human beings Mm. even if subtly or being taken on board to implement systems I don't agree with Mm. when we go back to that point about discernment I'm really categorical as to what I do or don't take on and I'm very lucky in that a lot of the work that comes my way is values-based so it's about people development how can we improve people's working lives? How can we bring in scholarly inquiry to enhance our understandings of people's lived realities? And how can we then seek to improve that and work collaboratively to do so? So for me, the meat, you know, those values, the values of compassion. And, you know, I often do the kind of circuit of conferences uh, about compassionate organizations. Um, and that links back to some of the Buddhist principles that I try to enact in the way I live my life. So I think about, well, what kind of person do I want to be? And if I'm going to leave a mark, what do I want that to look like? Uh, so for me, that becomes the meat. Uh, and even if there's a few bones around that to reach it, um, it then becomes a focus for me because that's what aligns to my passions and, and how I want to be as a professional. Oh, I love that. And I also love what you said about the bones, because I think it is true. Sometimes when you are feeling a little bit overwhelmed, you will do the menial task first, just simply to put, almost like prepare your mind to do the bigger, the bigger tasks at hand. So I, I love that. And I also <clears throat> love how you use your values in your work, because a lot of people may not feel that they have that opportunity. So the fact that you have created that opportunity for yourself to me, I just think is is amazing. And um, a topic that I would like to touch on, if that's okay with you, is your um is your alopecia and your management of it. Um, I love the fact that you've just been so honest about it. Um, and you and you don't hide um you don't hide it. You especially with your because obviously I follow your Instagram account and and you know and you're very open. You're very honest about that whole experience. How has that experience been for you? So initially it was quite difficult um, because it was during my divorce, which was incredibly challenging and the most challenging thing I've ever experienced, hands down, wouldn't wish it on anybody. And then when I developed hypothyroidism and alopecia, that put another layer of a downer on the whole thing, you know, I was like, why me? But that downer probably lasted a couple of weeks at the most. And I'm not quite sure what shifted, but I think I always wanted to be really open about it. I mean, people could see, because at the time I wasn't wearing wigs, you know, I was like wearing a bit of a headscarf and people could see the patches on my head. So, you know, you just end up being really open about it. It's just a physiology, isn't it? It's the human body. Um, and for me, physiologically, it was really interesting, autoimmune conditions, how something stress-related is being enacted in that way, where my cells are attacking themselves, uh, so the hair falls out and it doesn't grow. 
So there's something about understanding my stress response, mm -hmm. what that then meant for me needing to take stock so I didn't get more unwell, because I had to go on thyroid medication as well. And, and just being really aware, I think for the first time in my life, that actually our mental health, I mean, I knew this on paper, right? I'm a psychologist, but oh. suddenly to be like, actually, my mental stresses are really affecting my physical health. And at the time I had two small children. So if anything, the alopecia was a wonderful way of seeing that it was visible uh, and then thinking, right, okay, it's time to eat better, sleep, care for self, meditate, take time out, exercise, all of those things. My hair grew back a bit, but you know, it's still incredibly thin. Um, since then, I've just linked in with the most amazing hair loss community <laughs> through social media. I absolutely love wigs. I have hair now that is so much better than my biological hair ever was. I, I mean, it's it's just beautiful. When I had my um, biological hair out all the time, you know, I'd be dyeing it every few months a different colour. Now I've just got, you know, a whole plethora of <laughs> colours. And you meet so many wonderful women I've been through hardships, you know, hardships I can't even minor, minor in comparison, and, and kind of coming together over this almost quite fluffy and soft and kind of beauty enhancing thing that is our wigs, and it's just wonderful and uplifting. I also came into hair loss from, um, my dad has alopecia universalis, so he has no hair in his body, he's lost all his hair in his 40s, and also has um, thyroid issues. He, he would, you know, he's open about it, he wouldn't mind me mentioning. Um, so I think when I was little, especially in communist Poland, you know, people would mock him, um, kind of, you know, shout um, expletives at him and, and things like that, or assume that he was going through chemotherapy. Um, so I then, when my hair started falling out, I realized that as I was growing up, I always had that fear that I would be bald like my dad. And when it started happening, it was almost like a relief. From all those years of what if, what if? It's like, oh, actually, I am going bald. Do you know what? It's okay. <laughs> like, it's all good. And um, so it took away, I think, a lot of this kind of emotional burden I had from his own journey. Um, and, and my dad's uh, radio broadcaster has been on, on TV and my mum remembers how Polish TV gave him a wig to wear uh, and, he, and he said what is this nonsense you know and kind of like threw it off and uh, took it home and started messing around with it you know so he always embraced it and it kind of became his trademark uh, during a time when people wouldn't have shaved heads and um, yeah, so it, it's been wonderful. I think the alopecia, the wig wearing, it's been a gift. I love it. I love the, the story about your dad and also you taking ownership of your of your gift, as you put it. Um, and when you spoke about um, your journey with alopecia, you spoke about um, how it actually empowered you to eat better and then also um, focus more on your self-care. What other resources have helped you along the way? So I would say my psychotherapy training, so I'm in year two, is very focused on self-care. And it's made me sit up and think how crucial this is, yeah. especially now going into my 40s and 
you know, there, there is a point where our bodies get a bit creakier and we've got aches and pains. I mean, I'm lucky so far, all good, but it's that investment for the future that is so, so important. I don't always get it right. So I do need to be honest with listeners. You know, there are times when I do neglect myself and especially when school run, you go five minutes in the shower, out the door, I often do my makeup and put on my wig in the car after I've dropped the kids off. So I kind of go into a car looking quite different and then come out of the car like stars in their eyes, you know, like through the smoke. Oh, great, I'm me now. Uh, and you know, that rush around children, caring responsibilities, work, it doesn't serve our self-care, but, you do have to be so intentional about it. So when I can, you know, even if it's 10 minutes of stretches in the morning, or if there's a quiet period, just trying to do that to remain flexible. I've been vegetarian since I was eight. So there's a mindfulness that needs to um, be applied to the way vegetarians eat to you know, and make sure we get the right iron levels and, and protein. So I have a love for natural foods, for salads, beans, you know, all those things that has been there since my childhood. But that can be costly, you know, in the UK, the healthiest foods, paradoxically, are tricky to come by, especially if, you know, financially, people aren't that well off. So, you know, seeking, I mean, I'm, I'm quite lucky in that I'm not in that position, but nonetheless, it can be quite expensive to eat well. So you have to be a bit cleverer with where you source food from, but also finding the time just to make foods can be so therapeutic and meditative almost. Mm. So what resource? I think it's an internal resource. Mm of being intentional, but I also want to put in the caveat that I completely understand that that isn't afforded to us all mm -hmm. and social determinants of health play a far bigger part in who is able to eat well and who isn't, who is able to care for self and who isn't, yeah. than what we do as individuals. And I think that is quite a shameful part of our society where people don't have equitable resource when it comes to their own health and well-being. And is this and is that what's motivated you to to do the work that you're doing so you can wherever however possible create um, a more equitable society for us all? Yeah. Yes, I mean I can you know I barely <laughs> chip away at, at the surface of it all but yeah absolutely that is a driver particularly when it comes to equity in health. A lot of my research work has been carried out in Southeast London, which mm -hmm. is an area of high socioeconomic deprivation and health inequalities and how they affect underserved communities. And that has been a real driver for me. You know, how can my research in some way contribute to the quality improvement of services that people access for their health. Really, really important to me. I also love the NHS. I think the National Health Service is the best thing about this country. 
I'm 100% for a universal free at the point of access healthcare system that is publicly funded through taxation. And I do what I can to fight for that, be it through my writing, through my teaching. And I truly believe that the way one tackles health inequalities is through a free at the point of access healthcare system. Wow, that's amazing. And thank you for all the work that, um, that you are doing and also continue to do. So at the beginning of your career, what's in terms of all the work that you do now, what's one thing that you wish you would have known? Yeah, that's a really good question. The one thing that you will come across difficult and unpleasant situations at work where people are unkind, sometimes people bully, sometimes there's harassment at work. And I would really just want to hug the younger me and say, you know, you don't have to internalize this. This is not inherent to you or how you conduct yourself. It's simply the result of often a frustrated, disempowered workforce where colleagues can be harsh or unpleasant. It may well reflect on their own well-being. Because I think there were far too many scenarios that me, you know, going into the workforce encountered that really could be described as bullying towards me that at the time I didn't conceptualize them as such I just sort of you know went with it tried to plod along and whereas now I hope that through some of the work I do I advocate and support others in being able to speak up when they are encountering similar situations I don't think we can ever truly eliminate the lack of kindness in the workplace. Mm. But I have seen over time, particularly during the pandemic, I think one of the outcomes, although we would have never wished for there to be a global pandemic, of course, but one of the outcomes has been us thinking about how we relate to others, how important the support of others is, what is relational closeness mm. in our personal connections, but also at work and thinking about kinder, more compassionate workplaces. So yes, I would have said to the younger me, don't let your heart or yourself be broken by this. And I guess I didn't, but I do remember there was often a heaviness in the pit of my stomach. What is it about me? What am I doing wrong? You know, why aren't people wanting to be nice to me? Am I letting them down? Whereas now I've got a far more kind of external way of looking at that um, and hope to give those same skills to the people I, I now work with and coach and support. I love that. And I love, because you mentioned something similar there where you went from like a, a why me um, kind of mindset to a, um, a more empowered mindset. You also mentioned that happened when you, at the beginning of your divorce. So what has that journey been like for you? And what do you think actually changed for you to be able to become more empowered to the point now where you help others to become empowered too? And actually, you know, it is those 
uncomfortable experiences because it's only once you feel incredibly disempowered that then gives you that benchmark as to well where do I need to get to how do I come out of this state that I don't want to be in there's also something about acceptance that's really key here so things will happen that are difficult throughout our lives it's just part of the kind of inherent features of living of being human things beyond our control so there's an acceptance of that but also taking the learning you know I think when you feel almost broken at times you also then look out for the risk factors oh okay this is the sort of scenario i want to avoid or if i don't want to avoid i also know that i've got the resource and capability to deal with that because i came out the other end of what happened previously and i think that the sheer fact you know for all of us we've all been through hardships but we are still here yeah. so we have dealt with whatever cards we have been dealt and I think that's really important to remember that wherever we are in the here and now there's something that we've come out the other side of in order to still be here still exist still be having these conversations and for me that's incredibly empowering yeah I absolutely love that absolutely love that yeah, that, that is so, oh, that's just so, 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 so powerful. Um, so I'm going to pivot a little bit and ask you, what is your greatest fear and how has it helped you or um, not? My greatest fear. It's an interesting one. I think it is my own mortality, actually. It's trying to sit with existential fear. What I mean by that is that we're all going to die one day and leaving the life that I love, it coming to an end one day. And I think particularly having children in, in my case, those existential fears have become huge since having children you know because for to ensure the survival of the species you know we need to try to keep ourselves safe so we're there for our descendants <laughs> for our offspring to care for them so it plays into our biology it plays into our evolutionary drives but also this notion of oh my goodness perhaps one day well, in a way, if, if I'm lucky, right, you know, my children will be there with me when I pass on. Mm -hmm. And almost the fear of that for them, and you know, they're still quite young, but that, that is huge and, and all pervasive. So I think for us as human beings, it's really important to reflect on that and be with it because it's such a feature of living. You know, our very lives are defined by our mortality and by our death. So how can we really think about, look, I don't have an infinite number of years, like I mentioned previously, what do I want that to look like? 
that for me is a powerful way of dealing with that existential dread. It's well, the reality is I have no control over that at all. So what do I want my life to look like for the next, you know, I hope 40, maybe 50 years. And also where do I want to be physically? So if I want a good quality of life, it's not fail safe, <laughs> genetics, the context comes into play and so forth, but can I do some things to invest into my health and well-being to play a small part in maybe improving my quality of life later on down the line? So I would say that existential fear <laughs> is, a, is an amazing driver. And then, of course, training to be a person-centered and experiential psychotherapist I have the opportunity to explore a lot of those anxieties within the group, within my own therapy, within my supervision, and, you know, um, with, through client work too. So I'm in quite a privileged position where I get to reflect and ruminate <laughs> over um, my humanity, I guess. I love that. I really, really do. And I, and I love the way that um, you not only spoke about what your fear was, but also spoke about how you deal with that fear, because I think it's so important because um, otherwise it can become the monster outside that doesn't really live outside because it doesn't really exist. But um, when you actually deal with it, you're able to conceptualize it and and work through it so that you get to um, a better place with it, even if it remains a fear. So I love, love, love that. Conversely, what I'd love to ask you is, what excites you most about the next 12 months? Can I, I, can I give a really soppy answer? Of course. Um, <laughs> because, you know, for the first time in uh, over the, a decade, mm -hmm. I'm suddenly sharing a life with somebody and um, I'm so excited as to what the next 12 months would bring. I didn't think it was something that was going to happen for me where I wanted to share a home with someone again. And actually it, it's happened and I'm still pinching myself. Uh, I thought I was too odd having lived by myself with my children for <laughs> however many years to be able to pull it off but it's just been the most wonderful journey so far. And it came at a point where I thought, well, actually, you know, I'm so happy by myself. Let me stop seeking romantic um, relationships or like a romantic partnership because my life is so lovely and amazing that I'll just keep getting more pets, you know? <laughs> but now it's come my way. Um, the next 12 months to me feels so exciting. Having that opportunity to be part of a partnership, plan together. I've been very lonely at times as a solo parent. To have somebody to come home to in the evenings to talk about, you know, how my day has been and to hear about theirs. It's such a precious gift. And, you know, this doesn't have to come through a romantic relationship, of course. I've got loads of friends and lots of support, which has always been wonderful. But you've asked me that question at a point where, for me, the next 12 months are, oh, where is this exciting relationship that has come to me in my 40s going to take me? So, yeah, I'd say it's that. 
I, I, I absolutely, absolutely, absolutely love that. And it's not a soppy answer at all. Well done, you. Go you. Woohoo! <laughs> I'm in love with life, in love with my children and with myself. And, you know, now to have a romantic love and to love somebody in that way, it's so life enhancing. I think our capacity for love in all its forms is just, such a precious thing that we have as humans so where we've got the opportunity to give it out and receive it you know let's let's just grab it <laughs> I, love I absolutely love that so you do a lot um you are a mum you have a family um you have um you're studying and you also um have what your job and then you also do work outside of your job too how do you fit it all in I don't. Um, <laughs> I don't. Um, I do far too much for the amount of hours in the day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, things do get done. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm now at a point where I'm delegating work as well as, as my uh, business is growing. So that's quite exciting. Mm-hmm. But that itself then brings, you know, a time needed for delegation for oversight yes uh, but I'm very keen to move into a more oversight position uh, in, in my company in order to enable some growth uh, I say some just as an aside you know that there's this kind of mantra of businesses comes from the late 70s 80s growth is good whereas I don't ascribe to that I like to grow it a bit so we can take on larger scale contracts Mm-hmm. to build relationships over time to have a bit more of a turnover mm-hmm. but the joy of having a small business mm-hmm. I'm with I know my clients I know the projects I learn from them directly is fabulous so when I say growth it's it's small scale growth but continued kind of boutique work that I do which brings me joy so how do I fit it all in you know imperfectly I think sometimes things suffer uh, so it might be that yeah my shower is three minutes as opposed to five uh, sometimes I do sit up into the night working but it's something I try to do away with um, when I can because actually for me, good sleep is a priority. I'm somebody who likes a lot of sleep and that helps me function. And then you're balancing the needs of several people in a household. Uh-huh. So often, you know, my children's events, they're going to take priority. I'm the parent who goes to all the plays, the parent-teacher evenings, all of that kind of thing. So I'm there. I'm quite lucky in that I can be flexible in the way I work. I'm there at most pickups on there at every drop off and that's so important for me whilst they are young so I guess how I do it the children are at the core then there's the sense of look how much money do I need to bring in to keep the show on the road Mm -hmm. and then the rest of it is a mixture of kind of trying to be strategic and proactive but a lot of the time just getting caught up in this reactive stuff which I really enjoy Mm -hmm. so There's still a fair bit of, oh my goodness, <laughs> how do I cope with it? But then also a lot of courage of actually what I do when it's fine. <laughs> What's the worst thing that can? Just take the risk, you know. 
Yeah, I love that. I love, and I love your honesty too. Thank you so much. So what I would want to ask you next is, is there a question that I haven't asked you already that you would have liked me to? Not so much a specific question, but I think it might be worth mentioning, you know, when you were talking about kind of well-being and resource, one thing mm -hmm. I didn't mention is the huge affinity I have to nature um, and I'm by no means <laughs> the only person. I think there's something that we need as human beings, which involves us being connected to natural surroundings. Mm -hmm. It isn't always easy to do, particularly in urban areas. But I would say to your listeners that for renewal, think about what is that thing for your renewal? Could it be, you know, taking a walk in, in the woods? That's not for all people. Could it be staring at a flower, staring at the sky? But is there a way of integrating the natural or even natural foods or natural fabrics or natural materials, textures, something that resembles the natural world and, and bring that around us? Because I think this is how we're designed. As much as we've moved away from that, there's something about that which reinvigorates. So when we're thinking about mindset and how we can create the ideal context for our mindset, what can we do that helps us feel an affinity with the world around us? I guess is, is the message I wanted to, to share in case that feels aligned to any of your listeners. I love that. I love that. And I loved when you used the word invigorate, because that's exactly, um, I think that's exactly what that does when you reconnect with, with nature. Um, and the next question I would love to ask you is, what advice would you give to a woman who wants to go to her next level, but isn't sure where or how to start? I think it's important to know what that next level looks like. Um, and have that very intrinsically driven. So, you know, there's the kind of external world where there's this perception of what's the next level, I don't know, um, degrees or earning a certain amount or becoming a CEO of something, or I don't know, um, having the latest car, all of that, you can't take that with you when you die. You know, it's all, it's all extrinsic. What is it internally? Where do I see myself? How do I want to feel? What does my day-to-day -day practically look like? Okay, I'm a CEO, but if I'm having to wake up at five in the morning and get home at 10 p.m. and hardly spend any time with loved ones, I mean, some CEOs don't have that kind of life and they balance everything really well, but maybe that's not quite for me in this life stage I'm in. So what does my day look like? How do I want to feel? Where do my pleasures come from? You know, do I want time for that morning cup of tea and to read the news or read blogs I like or scroll through my social media. If I want that hour in the morning, what is best going to serve me to make that happen? So to me, the next level is so unique to that individual. It's what is my comfort, my joy throughout the day? And I think work outwards from that. So, you know, you know how you wanna feel, how you operate, what does my day look like? And then, well, 
what needs to happen in order to put that into place. And I think that for me then creates that plan and puts that woman at the center of that. And that's really important because then that's going to keep the momentum going and highlight self-care and highlight that woman at the core of her life. Because it's nobody else's, it's her life. And what does that look like for her? I love that. Thank you so much for that. That is amazing. And my very last question is, what gives you a meant for more mindset? I think I'll go back to the zest for life piece. As you know, that's what you identified in me, a zest. I like that word. You know, um, where where is your zest? So, you know, if we think about that lemon zest, that taste, that feeling, that connection, where is that for you? And having the courage to think about that for yourself as a woman it is important. That isn't going to come from anywhere else. No one's going to hand that to you. It has to come from you before it's too late, dare I say. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I say before it's too late, again, our lives are short. So find that zest for you and make sure it's internal to you because in essence, that's what's going to make you recognize that you are meant for more. I love that. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you so much for um, your honesty, your love, your compassion, your zest for life. Um, you're just, just everything that you've shared with us today. And um, I think that the thing that touched me the most was your, the way you've um, gone from a place of not feeling so empowered to really being empowered so much so that you're in a place where you're compassionate, loving, giving enough to help other people. Three principles that I live by are peace, love and joy. And you really encapsulate that and you really um, shine through with that. And um, I just want to say thank you again for your honesty. Thank you again for your bravery. Thank you again for your courage. And thank you for all that you do, because that really emanates and you are shining the light on others as you do. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You're, you're really, really welcome. Um, where can our listeners connect with you online? Ooh, so um, I've got a Twitter um, and I might have to spell my surname now. So it's at Maria and then They'll see it, in the, of course, in the description, but at Maria, K-O-R-D-O-W-I-C-Z is, is the best place. And then also you can find me on LinkedIn and I've got a website too. So uh, perhaps you can add that to the blurb if, if listeners would like to have a look. I'll add, I'll add all of those to the show notes, guys, so you can check them out there. So guys, that's it for um, today, but I just want to say um, thank you so much for listening again and we shall see you on the next one. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. For more about me and what I do, check out my website, nextlevelcoachinggroup.com where you can also download my free Release Your Mindset Books Guide. You can also follow me on Instagram at Next Level Coaching Group or on Facebook at Next Level Lounge. Please make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave me a rain and review. Thanks. See you on the next one.